empezar para atrás. Oh, that's just, that's just happening again. <laughs> okay, cool. So if you guys have your Bibles, we're going to be camped out in Matthew chapter 11 today. Uh, so you guys can go ahead and turn there. We're going to be there kind of all morning. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hands, and one of our uh, greeters or helpers will um, come by and give you one. Feel free to take that home with you. Uh, it's yours to keep. It's our gift to you. Cool. So as you guys turn to Matthew chapter 11, we're actually going to start at the very end here. The kind of a, there's a lot going on in this chapter, but it all kind of drives towards one big idea that kind of culminates at the end. And so I kind of want to start there at the end, and then we'll work our way backwards, okay? So go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. And it's a really, really famous uh, verse that probably many of you guys have heard of. In Matthew chapter verse 28 reads like this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Right, that's Jesus talking. And he says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And that's a pretty sweet promise, right? Like, how many of you guys like rest? Show of hands. Okay, like, sleeping is probably one of my favorite things to do. Um, and snoozing feels really good, right? Um, and I think we can all agree that we would like to sleep like this sleeping puppy here behind us. Um, we can all agree, right, that getting a good night's rest and feeling like that is a pretty sweet thing. Right? We're getting some much-needed rest and relaxation on vacation. Just to step away is pretty sweet. Right? And so this idea of physical rest, I think, is something that all of us can uh, agree on. It's good, it's necessary, it's important, and it's very, very sweet. Um, and yet, what is Jesus talking about here when he talks about rest? The crazy thing is as good as physical rest is, and I fully intend to knock out like this puppy after finals week, um, Jesus here is talking about something a little bit different. And he's talking about something that's actually even better than physical rest. Okay, because Jesus here is talking about this idea of rest for your soul. Okay, he's talking about a rest that you can have regardless of your circumstances. And he's talking about a rest that goes way deeper down into the core of who you are. Okay? So that sounds pretty cool, right? Like for your soul to be at rest. But what does that actually mean? What does that look like? And how do we experience it? Those are kind of the questions that we want to unpack today as we walk through Matthew chapter 11. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and turn to the beginning of Matthew chapter 11. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 24. Uh, it's kind of a big section of scripture, but we'll kind of walk through it pretty quickly. And the big idea for us this morning, right, as the whole of Matthew chapter 11 moves is this. That Jesus gives rest for our souls, and his rest is an invitation to let go of our own kingship in order to find rest in his. Okay, we're going to see this played out over and over again in Matthew chapter 11. So we'll start with the beginning and our first point here in verses 1 through 24. And it's this, right? That the kingdom of God is here and it does not look the way we expect. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. We're going to go ahead and read uh, chapter 11 verses 1 through 6 first. And we're going to see this kind of played out with John the Baptist. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. All right, let's pause here for a minute. Who's John the Baptist, right? It's probably the first question. 
little bit of backstory. John actually showed up earlier in Matthew chapter 3, and he was introduced to us as Jesus' cousin. He was Jesus' friend. And perhaps more importantly, he was the forerunner to Jesus. Right? He was the one who was baptizing people in the wilderness and preparing them for the coming king. Right? John the Baptist was the one who looked at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John the Baptist was actually the one who baptized Jesus. And he was there when the heavens opened up and a voice from heaven declared, this is my beloved son. Right? And so if anybody should know that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised king, it's John the Baptist. Right? He's been there through it all. He's seen it all. And yet here we see that John is doubting. Right? And he has questions. Why? Well, if you take a look, John's sitting in prison. Right? And a few pages later, we're going to get to in a few weeks, John actually gruesomely gets beheaded. Now, when you think about John and his vision of the kingdom of God, I'm pretty sure it did not entail him being in prison on death row. And so you can see why John has some questions in this section. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus to essentially ask Jesus, like, hey, like, I'm in prison right now. What's going on? Right? Are you the promised Messiah or should we be waiting for someone else? Right? Are you actually the promised king? And let's take a look at Jesus' response to him. First, I think it's important to notice that Jesus is super gentle with him, right? He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't scold him for his questions or his doubts. He gives a response to John, and he's actually very commending of John later on in this section, we'll see. But Jesus also gives a very real response to John, right? And what does Jesus say? He says, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed. And he goes on to list a whole bunch of miracles that Jesus has been doing. Right, all the miracles that Jesus has been performing, he's listing these things. Now, these things that Jesus is doing, they're not random miracles, right? These miracles that Jesus is performing are actually aligned with Old Testament prophecies about what the coming Messiah would do. And so when Jesus is listing these things, he's essentially saying, yes, John, look at what I'm doing. I am the promised king, right? I am the promised king. He's giving him that hope and assurance that Jesus is the promised king. At the same time, though, there's something really interesting here that Jesus does not mention, so if you look back in Isaiah um, at kind of the prophecies of what the coming Messiah would do in Isaiah 35 and 61, there's a whole bunch of things there that talk about you know, the blind seeing and the lame walking and the deaf being able to hear and the mute speaking, all these things. And in Isaiah 61, it talks about good news being proclaimed to the poor and the captives being set free. Now of all that list, which one do you think John is most interested in given his current predicament? The captives being set free, Right? And so John's a prophet. He knows Isaiah through and through. And so as Jesus is listing these things, I can just imagine John being like, okay, check, 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 check. And Jesus gets to the good news being proclaimed to the poor, and he stops, right? And if you're John, you're like, okay, and then, right? And what does Jesus say instead? He says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And that word stumble on account of me can also be translated take offense at me. Right? Essentially what Jesus is saying is, Yes, John, the kingdom of God is here. I am the king, right? There's this great hope and promise in me. And at the same time, no, John, the kingdom does not look the way you expect it to, right? And blessed or happy are those when they don't trip up over the fact that I don't meet your expectations, right? When Jesus doesn't meet their expectations, how do we respond? And Jesus says, happy are those who don't stumble upon that. So let's move on from there, right? Verses 7 to 15, Jesus starts to address the crowd around him. 
So the crowd's looking in, right? And so as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Okay, so what's going on here, right? So we saw John's, uh, Jesus' response to John, right? Which was basically, yes, I am the king, but no, the kingdom does not look the way you expect. Like, blessed are those who don't stumble on account of me. And so as Jesus was giving that response to John's disciples, the crowd here is looking in at the situation, right? And the crowd is probably wondering, like, whoa, like John the Baptist is in prison, right? What's going on here? What's up with this kingdom? And so Jesus takes this as a teaching opportunity to address the crowds. And the first thing he does, which I love, is Jesus affirms John the Baptist, right? Through everything that Jesus is saying here, he's again referencing back to Old Testament prophecies about, um, this coming, about the prophet John, right? And Jesus affirms him. He says, yes, John the Baptist was a prophet, and he's not just any prophet, right? He's the greatest prophet of all time, hence the reference to Elijah. And he's not just the greatest prophet of all time, but he's the prophet who would pave the way for the coming king, for Jesus. And so in all these things, Jesus is again highlighting the fact that, yes, the kingdom of God is here, and that, yes, Jesus is the king. And yet, at the same time here, we see this fact that the kingdom doesn't look the way we expect, right? Because he talks about the kingdom of heaven being subjected to violence and violent people raiding it. And if you guys think back to the beginning of Matthew, when we started this whole series on the Gospel of Matthew, ever since the beginning of the birth of Jesus, and we were anticipating the king, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence. Right, in the very beginning, you know, all the children in, uh, under two years old in Bethlehem were killed because King Herod felt threatened by this coming king. Right, John the Baptist here is in prison. He's going to get beheaded just a few chapters later. And ultimately, we know that Jesus, this king of the kingdom, is going to go to the cross, and he's going to be, suffer a criminal death. Right? And so in every way, here, what we're seeing is this pattern. Again, Jesus is saying, yes, the kingdom of God is here, but again, no, it doesn't look the way you expect. And then he says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. In other words, are you listening, right? It doesn't look the way you expect. Are you shutting me out? Or are you listening and open to see what God is doing, even when it doesn't look the way you expect? From there, we can look at verses 16 to 24. I'm not going to read that whole section, but if you just kind of glance through it real quick, um, essentially what's going on here is Jesus is addressing the generation, so the people around him at that time, as well as three cities where he did the majority of his ministry. And you kind of see the same pattern happening here, but here Jesus kind of escalates a little bit because he's beginning to call out these, this generation and these cities. Right? And he's calling them out because they're so stuck in their own ways. They're so stuck on their own expectations of what the kingdom of God should look like that they're missing out on what Jesus is actually doing, on what God is actually doing. And so he calls them out on that. And so from verse through 1 through 24, we know we kind of just ran through that real quick. Right, but you guys kind of see the same pattern at work here, right? It's the same pattern, the same idea. It's an escalating intensity, but it's one simple idea, right? Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is here and that he is the king, 
And yet he's saying the kingdom doesn't look the way you expect. And what he wants us to take away from that, right, is blessed is anyone who does not stumble upon that, right? Does not stumble into knowing Jesus Christ. And so for us there, the question is, what are our expectations? What are our expectations of the kingdom of God? What are our expectations of what the good life is supposed to look like? And when Jesus comes and he says, my kingdom is here, but my kingdom does not look the way you expect, do we take offense at that? Do we stumble upon that, right? Or are we willing to hear and are we willing to embrace the good news of Jesus' kingdom even when it looks different? So having said that, let's move on to verse 25 here, right? Because Jesus almost, in highlighting these things and calling out the generation, kind of moves into the section where he's almost exasperated, right? And you can feel kind of Jesus' exasperation here. And in that state, he praises his father. Verse 25, at the time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So what's going on there? Right? Jesus is essentially summarizing everything that's just happened in verses 1 through 24. Right? In verses 1 through 24, Jesus addresses John the Baptist. He addresses the crowds. He addresses this generation. He addresses these three cities. And it's all focused on the same idea. Right? That when we're stuck on our expectations, we miss out on what Jesus is actually doing, on what the kingdom of God is actually doing. Right? And here, he kind of highlights this with um, this kind of upside down and reverse nature of the kingdom, where it's the little children the infants who recognize their need, who get it. And it's the wise and the learned who are missing the point. Right? Now, there's nothing wrong with being um, educated or smart or intelligent. Right? That's not what Jesus is saying. But he's contrasting this idea of wise and learned with the idea of little children. So I really like playing with Lego. Okay? Um, any Lego fans out there? Yeah? Okay, because when you're playing with Lego, everything is awesome. Right? So... Whenever I visit um, my nephews up in Seattle, I, I play with Lego with them. And it's kind of funny because when I'm out there, uh, my in-laws are always like, wow, he's so good at playing with kids, right, during the afternoon. And then the kids go to sleep, and then at night I'm still there playing with Lego, and they're like, oh, okay, he just likes playing with toys. <laughs> but there's one thing that's pretty cool about playing with little kids with Lego, right? And like when they're younger and they're trying to build something, they get pretty frustrated, right? Because they, they're trying to build something and they can't build it, and they're like, oh, it's not working. And as, you know, I get to step in and be like, hey, like, how about we be master builders and you try doing it this way, right? And you get to show them new ways to build things and new ways to approach it, new ways to think about what they were trying to do. And usually the kids, my nephews are like, wow, that's super cool, right? And they think I'm cool. And I'm like, that's amazing. <laughs> and they're like, teach me more, right? I want to learn from you, right? Now, imagine if we fast forwarded 20 years and somebody's an adult is playing with Lego, and I go up to them, and I'm like, hey, how about you build it this way? How do you guys think that would go over? Probably not very well, right? I think there's something about us that as we uh, grow up from being little children and infants to adults, and we become wise and learned, we hate it when people infringe upon our areas of expertise, right? You guys have probably all felt that sometime. You're doing what you do best, and somebody comes in and says, hey, how about you do it like this? And it just drives you crazy because you're like, I'm the expert here, right? Don't tell me how to do this. I know what I'm doing. And that's exactly, I think, the kind of feeling 
that Jesus is getting at here. And he's calling us out on it because I think all of us here like to think, tend to think of ourselves as experts on our own happiness. We tend to think of ourselves as experts on how our lives should look, right? And so what Jesus is saying here is that when we think we're experts on how life should look, when we have our own expectations about how our life should look, we tend to reject anything that looks different. And so when Jesus is stepping in with his kingdom and he's saying it's so much better, we tend to reject it because we're the experts, right? And we refuse to come to him. And so from verse 1 all the way through 27, hopefully we're seeing this consistent pattern and theme, right? A consistent pattern and theme that for those who have it all figured out, right, the kingship of Jesus is a threat, right? But for those who are little children and recognize their need, the kingdom of Jesus is the best news ever, right? The question for us this morning is this. Will we let the king be king? Or are we going to hold on to our own idea of what life should look like, our own idea of what happiness should look like, our own idea of us being kings and queens? With that in mind, let's move into verses 28 to 30 and where we started. The big idea here, right, is rest under a new yoke, that we would cease striving for our own kingdom and start living in his. Let's read verses 28 to 30. Jesus here says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, what is a yoke? Right? What is a yoke? Let me throw a picture up there of a yoke real quick. But a yoke is essentially uh, a farming device that was used to distribute weight across the shoulders of a cattle or an oxen in order for them to be able to pull something like a plow or a cart, right? That's what a yoke is designed for. And from a literary perspective, the way this word yoke was used in Jewish literature, back in the Old Testament, um, when, is, when, Jesus, or when God talks about the people of Israel under oppression, right, under foreign oppression, he talks about the idea of them being under an iron yoke. Right? In other words, an uncomfortable yoke that is unnecessarily heavy. In the more recent times uh, around Jesus' days, the rabbis of the time would talk about inviting people to come and to live under the yoke of the Jewish scriptures, right? under the yoke of God's people. In other words, it's talking about a way of life. Right? And so when you look at all of this and you put it together, this imagery of a yoke is talking about this idea of what drives us. It's talking about the idea of what compels us. It's talking about the way of life that we live under. Now, this idea of a yoke, Jesus is essentially saying, if you want rest, come to me and come under my yoke, right? Now, that's probably not a particularly uh, pleasant imagery for a lot of us, right? And in fact, that probably seems uh, pretty offensive in many ways, right? I think it goes against everything in uh, our modern ethos of individualism and freedom. Like, we don't want to put on a yoke right? Like, this is not what we want to do. And yet, at the same time, is what Jesus is saying here in the imagery of the yoke so different from anything else that he's been saying, right? Last week, we saw that Jesus talked about us as sheep without shepherds, right? And that he's the good shepherd. Here, earlier in chapter 11, we saw that Jesus is comparing us to little infants, right? Little children in need of a father. 
And now here with the imagery of the yoke, Jesus is saying that, comparing us essentially to cattle or oxen in need of a better master. Right? And every single one of these, Jesus is pointing out the same idea that you and I don't make good kings and queens. Right? We don't make good masters for ourselves, but in fact, we need the rightful king and the rightful master to lead us. Right? And that's where we're going to find rest for our souls. So let's take a look at this idea of a yoke real quick. Right? Because Jesus talks here about being weary and burdened. So what is it that drives us in life? Right? When we are living under our own kingship, our own queenship, when we're calling the shots in our life, we like to think that we're free, right? But I think if we really consider our own experiences, oftentimes calling the shots in our own life is actually pretty restless, right? Because we end up being driven by all sorts of things, and there's a heavy yoke that's on our shoulders because of that. I think in Davis, some of the things that drive us might be achievement, right? Whether it's academic achievement, career achievement, we're always under that constant pressure to have to achieve. And that's one of the yokes that we put on ourselves, right, when we're running life our own way. Or perhaps it's family, right? For some of us here, we operate under the yoke of having the perfect ideal family and making sure that our you know, marriages look perfect or making sure that our kids have all the best things for them. And these aren't bad things, right? But at the same time, if this is what drives us, Right? If this is the core of who we are and our kingship and our queenship is all about this, then there's a constant pressure to be able to perform, right? a constant pressure to be able to be good enough to provide what you're seeking. Or maybe for some of us, it can be church, right? our idea of what church is supposed to look like. Right? And we're driven by that. Right? We're trying to achieve a certain ideology of church. But that's what's driving us. That's the yoke that's on our shoulders. And I think those of us in ministry, we probably all experience that, right? That when that becomes a thing that drives us, it can be a burden. And it's restless. And lastly, and I think this is a crazy one that kind of came to my mind uh, just this week, but sometimes we can even turn our relationships with Jesus into a burden because we try to take control of the reins, right? We say, my relationship with Jesus is supposed to look like this. And we're trying to drive it instead of letting Jesus lead us. Right? And that can become a burden to us. And we start wondering, what's wrong with me? Why doesn't my relationship look right? And we're doing everything to try to push ourselves. And that can become a burden. Right? And so in all of these things, I think we begin to see that when we are trying to be our own kings and queens, and we are trying to run life ourselves, it's actually very much of a burden. Right? I mean, you've probably seen the memes about how the presidency ages you, right? Um, but in many ways, I think being in control or trying to be in control and run things and being in charge is very tiring, especially when everything is achievement and performance driven and we're constantly pushed to have to do more. In many ways, we are our own harshest critics and we can be our own slave drivers, putting that burden upon ourselves. And that's where Jesus is stepping in with his good news, right? He's saying that he offers a yoke that is light and easy. And he's inviting us to come to quit trying to be our own kings and queens, to let go of that, and instead to find rest in him. And I know it sounds crazy, right? Because everything in us says that's upside down. That's not the way life works, right? Everything in us says that, no, when I figure life out, that's where I'm going to find joy and happiness and rest. And Jesus says, you're never going to do that. You're never going to get there because you're constantly under pressure to achieve. Instead, Jesus says, come to me and put on my yoke and find rest in me. Right? 
Now, in what way is Jesus' yoke light and easy? And what does that even mean? I think it comes down to who Jesus is. Because Jesus says here that we should learn from him because he is gentle and humble. Because Jesus isn't a master that's pushing us to achieve, that's driving us to performance. Instead, Jesus is the one who laid down his life on the cross for us. Jesus is the one that has achieved it all for us and given us an identity in him such that we're freed from having to try to make or create our own identity. Jesus is telling us to trade in our yoke of achievement and performance that we put on ourselves, a yoke that is heavy and burdensome, and instead to put on his yoke of unconditional love, right? And there's so much freedom in that. Um, Yeah, there's so much freedom in just knowing that unconditional love. To kind of give you guys an example of what that might look like. So for me, as a student, as an MBA student, and some of you guys probably feel this as students, right? Uh, School is so much fun. Right, I think one of the things for me always is looking out, trying to find an internship, right? That's like what all of us MBA people do. Uh, we try to find a summer internship. And that process is never fun. If any of you guys have ever been applying for jobs, there's so much that tends to cause you to kind of question, right? And to be worried and to be anxious about what's coming next. Um, you know, you put your application out there and people don't respond. And the crazy thing is it's not just trying to get the job. But in many ways, the idea of a job in our day and age is tied to how our identity, right? It's tied to how people see us. It's tied to how we think of ourselves and our self-worth. And when I get stuck in that track, right, it is so restless. It is so restless. But when I remember who Jesus is and his invitation for me to come to him, to step away from the kingdom of self, the kingdom of trying to make a name for myself, and instead to come and to live in his kingdom where he loves me unconditionally regardless of what has happened, right? There's so much freedom in that. And there's rest in that, right? When he says come and to realize that my career and my opportunities and my school and anything else is about an opportunity to love God and love others and it's not about trying to make a name for myself, there's rest in that moment, right? When I actually realize that and take that to heart, that there's, I don't need to try to achieve something for myself anymore because Jesus has given me a new identity in him and through his unconditional love, it's in that moment that I find rest. And so that's what Jesus' invitation for us is, to come and to put that on. But the second thing is also this. Right? There is great freedom in simply coming and following Jesus. Right? I know often we don't like the idea of being a follower, but I think of the image of a, Lord of the Rings, uh, Aragorn, right? Like, man, I would follow Aragorn. He's pretty cool, right? And Jesus is not just the rightful king, but he is the perfect king. And there's freedom in realizing that we can follow him. Just this week, I was really looking forward to something that kind of fell through. And it's kind of ironic, right? Because we're talking here about rest, and this week when that fell through, I was feeling incredibly restless. And I'm like, this is ironic because we're talking about rest and I'm feeling very restless. And processing through that, and I think what really hit me as I was processing through that was the idea that, yeah, I don't know how the future is going to turn out, right? None of us know how the future is going to turn out. 
In many ways, the following Jesus doesn't change things circumstantially for the better. Just look at John the Baptist situation. Right? In many ways, following Jesus means that things could change for the worse. And yet, because we're following him, and because he is a humble and gentle master, right, I can rest and just follow him one step at a time, each step, every step of the way, even when I don't know what the future holds. Right? Because ultimately, I know that there's a promise of resurrection life because Jesus has conquered sin and death. But in the midst of the unknown, there's great rest in following because I'm not the one that has to put it all together. I'm not the one that has to figure it all out. So as we take a step back, again, I want to come back to this big idea that Jesus gives rest for our souls and his rest is an invitation to let go of our own kingship in order to find rest in his. Right, for those of us here this morning, maybe you're here for the first time, and this idea sounds crazy, right? Because for our entire lives, we've been taught that we're supposed to call the shots in our lives. It sounds like a crazy idea, and yet Jesus' invitation is exactly this upside-down idea to let go in order to come and find life in him. And for some of us, maybe we've been in church our entire lives. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, there's probably all areas where we're holding on to. Right? Areas where we still feel like we are the experts. Areas where we still feel like we want to be in control. Areas where we still feel like we know what this area of our life is supposed to look like. And we're unwilling to let that go. Right? I think it's in those areas where we tend most to struggle to find rest. Right? Jesus' invitation for us this morning is to let go. Right? To let go and to come and to actually experience that rest in him, because the rest that he gives is so much better than when we're trying to run things for ourselves. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, as we've been looking at this concept of rest, on the one hand, it's so simple and beautiful because you're calling us to just come, right? to just come as we are and to realize that us trying to run our lives our own way, us trying to find our identity or our happiness or our joy under our own kingship doesn't work. And you're inviting us to come to you and to find life and rest in you. It's so simple. And at the same time, God, it can feel so difficult because it feels so unknown, because it's contrary to everything we've ever known. But God, I just pray this morning that you would be moving in us to take this step, to start moving in this journey that we would learn from you. God, it's a journey that you're inviting us into. And God, I just pray this morning that you would be transforming us from the inside out that we would be able to start experiencing rest in you in a whole new way this morning. Rest that is so much better um, than anything we could ever find for ourselves, God. I pray these things in Jesus' name.